grateful for this <clears throat> youth choir, this whole worship ministry leading us in worship today. <clears throat> well, this morning, we are turning a page, as I mentioned, as we begin a new season in our church's life. You know, our theme for this entire year is, why does it matter? And we are looking at various aspects of that particular question as we are engaged together on a year-long journey in apologetics and in evangelism. And we have just completed our winter season, and now we're beginning the Easter season. So let me just remind you of the, uh, the topics that we're going to discuss in 2023. We began with the question, why does anything matter? That was our initial question. This Easter, why does your story matter? The spring, why does the family matter? The summer, why does eternal life matter? Then why does the Holy Spirit matter? Why does the church matter this fall? Why does mission matter? Why does the incarnation matter? So those particular topics we will cover during our eight liturgical seasons here at First Baptist Arlington. And we'll wind our way through each one of those topics. This is going to be a year of exploration, a year of evaluation and reflection. On Wednesdays, we're supplementing this conversation with a Bible study that I lead. We're studying the book of Genesis for this entire year uh, as it is underneath all that we are uh, acknowledging and learning together. Some scholars have said that the book of Genesis is the most New Testament book in the Old Testament, and I would agree with that. The, the themes, the foundation that's covered in the book of Genesis really sets the stage for what happens in the New Testament. So with that said, Easter 2023, here's our theme for Easter. Your story, why does it matter? So when you think about your life, your particular story, your experiences with God, why does that matter? As a matter of fact, some of you have shared some stories with us already, and we'd love to hear your story about how God's working in your life right now, maybe in a, an experience with the Lord in the past. You can actually write that to us and send it to mystory at fbca.org, and we'd love to hear your story. So with that said, uh, we're going to make our way through some of the famous stories in John's gospel. We're going to be reading John's gospel during the entire Easter season. Our daily Bible readings will take us all the way through all 21 pages of John's gospel. But what we're going to do on Sunday morning is we're going to focus on some of these interesting encounters that Jesus had in John's gospel. Some of the lengthy conversations that Jesus had. And one one New Testament commentator says what John is doing is he's holding up mirrors for you to see Jesus and yourself in a different light with the stories that he chooses to include in his gospel. I think that's a great way to look at it. So I want you to think about that this morning and imagine yourself maybe in these stories. So we're going to start with a very familiar one and I've entitled the message Wedding Planning so the story we're going to look at today is found in John 2. So would you look at that with me if you've got your copy of the New Testament? And I'll invite you to stand as we honor the Lord Jesus in the reading of the gospel. <clears throat> so John tells this story, page 2, verse 1. 
On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. There you have it. I'm just reading what the Bible says. <laughs> he says, but you, you've saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Thank you. You can be seated. Y'all ever um, planned a wedding? Do y'all know how nerve-wracking it can be sometimes? You may be surprised by this, but I first started as a pastor in 1983. So I have been to one or two weddings. Um, I see uh, Dr. Wade here today, Dr. Wade and Miss Rosemary. We've been to some weddings, haven't we? we? We have stories. You know, I'll just be honest with y'all. Weddings do not make me nervous as a pastor. Funerals always make me nervous. Because in a wedding, if you're the pastor and you mess up, they're still married and it just becomes a story, you know? They'll be telling it from now. Well, at our wedding, our pastor did so-and-so. So I tell my, the, some of the uh, young pastors that I've mentored through the years, it's okay at a wedding. Just don't mess up a funeral. <clears throat> That's a little different. Um, and I've messed up along the way. My very first wedding, I was pastor in Oklahoma. I was nervous. First time I'd ever done a wedding. And uh, I grew up in a flower shop uh, in Birmingham. My aunt and uncle owned a flower shop. So I had delivered flowers at numerous weddings, helped arrange flowers and all that. So I was familiar with it all, and, and I'd actually been married myself, so I'd been to some weddings. But I had never actually conducted one. Well, the first wedding I did, the bride's brother was also a preacher, so she wanted him to be a part of the ceremony. So that meant we had to do this little tag team thing, which is always a little awkward when you're doing a wedding, because you never know when to do it and when to step up and... You know, you're not sure what they're going to say, and you got what you planned, and they choose to say what you were thinking about saying. So it's just a fascinating thing. But here was the one thing she decided she wanted. She said there is a special song that she wanted played. When her brother finished, he was to turn to me, and I was to step into my place and say nothing. And this song was going to be played that was very meaningful to them from when they first met. Well, again, I'm standing there listening to him, thinking about what he's saying. I'm thinking about what I'm saying. I'm nervous. And, uh, and so when I finally step into my place, I just start talking. <laughs> and she has this look of, what are you doing? And then I'm thinking, she's having doubts about this, uh, about this thing. And now I'm trying to figure out how to read her and watch her. And, 
and I'm looking at him, and he has the same look, and then I think to myself, you know what, there was supposed to be a song, and I just stopped, and I said, let us pray. <clears throat> and so everybody bowed, everybody bowed their heads, well, the musicians were behind me, and I just turned around and went, <clears throat> <clears throat> and one of them looked up at me, and I said, after this, sing. So when you watch the wedding video that they made, it's a little interesting little dynamic there in the middle of the wedding. You might only imagine, I've known that little couple a long time, and almost any time I see them, they go, remember when you uh, messed our wedding up? <laughs> no, I've forgotten it. How did, how did it go? Um, very next wedding, second wedding that I did, we were in a larger church in uh, Marietta, Oklahoma, and uh, I'd never been in a church that big to do a wedding, and I forgot to tell the groom he could kiss the bride. So we did the whole thing, and now I'll pronounce your husband and wife, and I said, I want you to get your bouquet, turn around and face the congregation. He looked at me, he said, well, can I kiss her? And I said, yes, uh, you may. Um, so I've never actually messed that one up again. I at least think about those kinds of things. But I've seen a lot of things in weddings, people fainting. And um, I even had a wedding where the mother of the bride issued a death threat to the bride if she got married and I'm doing the wedding in the middle of the ceremony, the mother walks in and just sits down right very in the middle of the church. We didn't have a middle aisle in that church. And I'm staring at her thinking, oh my goodness. So I kind of started moving because I thought it's hard to hit a moving target, you know. So I, <laughs> I was kind of easing around and I spent a lot of time behind the groom because I thought the groom was okay as the bride she was worried about. So <laughs> anyway, I've done a lot of weddings, y'all. So, and weddings are interesting. You know, people will, um, they will do interesting things at weddings. For example, I don't know if y'all know this young lady. Her name is Venetia Mittal. Her daddy's one of the richest men in the world, in India. Um, her wedding, it is the most expensive wedding on record. 2004, $66 million for the wedding. Took place just outside of Paris, at the conclusion of the wedding, they had fireworks, and the fireworks were shot from the top of the Eiffel Tower. So, you know, it's incredible. Probably the most memorable wedding for a lot of us, at least that we were able to watch, was the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Y'all remember that wedding? But it was just a measly $50 million, you know, compared to this other girl's wedding. But it was viewed by 750 million people, which is pretty remarkable. But sometimes wedding expenses accumulate over time. They don't necessarily happen just then. For example, here's the wedding of Elizabeth Taylor and Conrad Hilton. It was 1950. I'm not sure how much her family spent on that wedding. Stay tuned. Um, then we'll have the wedding of Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Wilding in 1952. Not sure how much her family spent on that wedding, but then we have the wedding of Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd in 1957. Not sure how much her family spent on that one, but then we have the wedding of Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher in 1957. Not sure about that. Then we have two weddings with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, one of them in 1964, one of them in 1975. Over time, eight different wedding dresses, receptions, and wedding planning parties just for Elizabeth's one family. So, quite fascinating. Now, in the second service, there'll be kids Googling Elizabeth Taylor because they have no idea who she is. <sighs> um, but, you know, when I think about weddings, marriages, um, it, it, sometimes it does, uh, it begins with a lot of emotion. 
as you're trying to plan all these things and get all the details worked out, and it's, this can be an interesting journey. So isn't it fascinating that when John records the very first miracle of Jesus in his gospel, it takes place as something almost every one of us can relate to, a wedding. And Mary was invited to the wedding, not too far from Galilee. There's two different uh, towns that have the word Cana in them, so we're not sure which one it was. Both of them were in walking distance, though, of where they lived. And so they make their way to the wedding, and... John tells us Jesus and his disciples also attended the wedding. So was it a relative of Mary's, a family friend? We're not really sure. We just know this was something that the, the Jews participated in as a matter of course, okay? So when you're reading this story, most New Testament interpreters say this. Do not miss the messianic imagery in Cana. So I want to point that out to you before we actually necessarily talk about the miracle itself, but I would agree with that because in John's gospel, John is sending you signals that this Jesus is the Messiah and he is going to explicitly state it and then he's going to give you numerous images to further explain his argument illustrate his belief, add texture to the story. Sometimes you've got to be paying attention because you, it may be lost on you, particularly if not, you're not a first century Jew. But make no mistake, John, he's had a long time to think about this. We think that John is somewhere near the end of his life. The other gospels, we presume, have already been written. And so John, who knows how much contact he's had with those other gospels, but he knew Matthew and uh, he, he certainly knew the Simon Peter. And so he knows some of these stories that have been circulating. And now it's his turn to recount what happened. So he paints a picture for us very carefully. So there's nothing accidental, certainly, in John's gospel. So with that said, let me, let me just point out to you what I mean by that. If you go back to the first chapter of John, just notice how John starts weaving in the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. He starts by saying, in the beginning. Well, any first century Jew would hearken back to the book of Genesis. So he's, he's calling you back to the very beginning. And then you come to verse 14, and he says, the word became flesh. And then he says this, and the word, when he says became flesh, he says, the word of God dwelt among us. And that Greek word, dwelt, is the word for tabernacle. And so he uses a verb form of that word. So John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now the tabernacle was associated with the presence of God in the Old Testament and the glory of God. And so what does John say? He tabernacled among us and we saw his glory, he says. And it's the glory of the one and only. Then he says later in verse 17, he says, now let me tell you for sure who this man is. He says the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth now have been given through him. So John is saying, a new page is turning here. <clears throat> a new chapter is beginning. Then you come to verse 29, and you have the story of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God, who's taken away the sins of the world. And then verses 32, 33, 34, John says, I've had this communication from God that when I see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, that's the Messiah. I saw it. 
So he's alluding to the story of Jesus' baptism. Then in verse 35, he refers to him again. He sees Jesus walking by and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And then Andrew, he's a follower of John the Baptist. He hears this message. He sees Jesus. He runs to tell his brother, we have found the Messiah. Then in verse 45 of chapter 1, they go to Nathaniel and they say, the one that the prophets have written about, that Moses has written about, we have found the Messiah. He's the promised one. So you've got all of this, this material in the very first chapter pointing you to these messianic imageries. Then you come to chapter 2. We're not really sure what to do with the opening phrase. No scholar has ever figured it out. We don't know. All it says is on the third day. Of what? Of the week? Of this story? Of we don't know. But for some reason, John chooses to include it. And he will connect it later when Jesus in this very chapter is in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, look at this temple. We can destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. So there's something going on here with this third day. I'm not really sure, but nevertheless. And then where do we find Jesus in John 2? At a wedding. Well, if you know anything about messianic imagery, the idea is that one day the Messiah was going to come. He was going to usher in a new era. And everyone who belonged to the Lord was going to be invited to that new era. And the imagery was, it's going to be like a great wedding feast. It's going to be like a great marriage banquet. And so that, that idea, that, that image is just woven into the fabric of messianic expectations. That the Messiah will usher in a new era. And we will have the bounty of a wedding feast. Then I want you to look at what John tells us. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. So the family's out of wine, and Jesus says, all right, look at these stone water jars. Now, the stone water jars were unique for every family, particularly at a ceremony like this. You had clay water pots. That was for drinking but according to the law and the understanding of the Jews at this time, a stone water pot could be kept much cleaner than a clay water pot. Stone water pot wasn't as porous. That was preserved or reserved for ceremonial water that was to be used in the rites of purification to prepare them for worship. It wasn't drinking water. Does that make sense? So we're out of wine. And presumably, there are a lot of clay water pots there with water in them. Jesus says, well, look at these pots. Well, everybody there knew what those pots were for. Those pots, when they were filled with water, could only be used in the rites of purification. Jesus says, fill them up with water, which they did. Then he says, now take some of that and take it to the master of the ceremony so that y'all can drink it. Now, they would have been thinking, you know, you don't drink this water. You do know that, right? I mean, the priest will use this water. We, we, we will use this water to get ourselves ready to purify ourselves. Jesus says, take that right there to the master of the ceremony. So that water, that purified water that's in a, a, a jar, if you will, that's, a, that's connected with ritual, that's what's going to now be used. What is Jesus saying? This whole idea of a banquet and the abundance of wine, all of that is messianic imagery. And John even gives you a little bit of a clue when you look at what happens between Jesus and Mary. Look at verse 3. Mary says, you know, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, why are you involving me? That's a whole other conversation. But then look what he says. 
My hour has not yet come. So John is helping you understand there's more going on here than just a conversation about wine at a wedding. My hour has not yet come. Follow that word through John's gospel. You'll come all the way to John 17 on the final night of the life of Jesus and he'll say, Father, the hour has come. Very same word. It's now time. So John is just introducing things to us right here in the early part of this gospel, this whole idea of, of a wedding, a banquet, the abundance of wine. Then I want you to notice what he says about it. Look at verse 11. After the water's been turned into wine, verse 11 he says, what Jesus did here in Cain of Galilee, notice how John puts it, was the first of the miracles. That's not what he says. It was a miracle. But what's he call it? A sign. What does a sign do? It points, doesn't it? It gives you direction. He says, this was the first pointer. This is the first indicator. And the glory of Jesus is on display through it. And he's going to use that imagery signs. There are seven of them in his gospel. There's another one in this very chapter, chapter two, the, uh, the cleansing of the temple. And then there'll be the, the healing that'll take place also in John two. The man in Cana who comes to Jesus who needs healing in Capernaum and it'll be the sign, it'll be the second sign in Cana. And then the lame man, chapter 5. And then the feeding of the 5,000. And then the blind man in chapter 9. And then raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11. All of those are signs, John will say. They're pointing us to something. So the point is, y'all, there's messianic imagery in all of this. This isn't just a story that John picked randomly from the life of Jesus. He said, oh yeah, I'm going to tell him about the wedding. No. He's letting you know that this right here is an indicator there's something afoot. It's more than just making sure a family's not embarrassed. No, there's something else going on. The Messiah has come. And when the Messiah comes, here's what John is pointing out. The transforming work of Jesus Christ. He's going to change everything. He's going to transform these ritual water pots into a provision of an abundance of wine for a celebration of joy. The water of purification is going to be replaced by the wine of celebration. And that's going to be typical for Jesus. Jesus is going to address the temple and the law and the Sabbath and all these rituals that are just woven into the life of Israel during this time in the history of Israel. The, those rituals, the, the Sabbath, the law, the temple, all of that is a part of their worship. It's the way they engage with God. It's woven into their psyche. Jesus is going to address every one of them and introduce something brand new. He's going to tell them there's a day coming when these stones will not even be standing anymore. He will say things like the Sabbath. You know, man was, was created, or the Sabbath was created for us, not us for the Sabbath. He is going to tackle the law, the prophets, uh, the Sabbath, the temple, their rituals, their purification, and he's going to do it in ways through signs that will totally change their understanding. He's going to transform it all because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is saying it's a new era. The Messiah has come and everything has changed, and he's going to bring joy and transformation. So all of that is happening while we're reading about this very interesting story. Okay, are y'all with me? There's messianic imagery, there's fulfillment imagery, there's transformation work taking place. All that's happening while there's a real story occurring. What I want y'all to know is, is that in our own lives, God is at work as well. 
in our lives. Sometimes we think we're just experiencing these things on a daily basis, but what you need to know is God is actually at work in your life, transforming, fulfilling his work in you and through you in the lives of others. So John is, is writing both a big story and this small story all at the same time, okay? So with that said, let's talk about this miracle, a miracle in a wedding, maybe even a miracle in a marriage. So John 2, here's the setting, a wedding. Now weddings in the Jewish culture in the first century were very important to them. Depending on your means, they might last up to a week where families would come. And when they did, you would have to provide for them. That was the expectation. You would invite friends, neighbors. And so that's what's happening here. Very familiar scene to these people. And uh, however, it took an unusual turn. It was embarrassing. You know, one year we were in West Africa in a village and a family was about to have a wedding. And so they told us a little bit about it. We didn't really understand the culture. We didn't know what they were all doing, but we saw them all loading up and the chief and several people loaded up. Somebody had brought this vehicle. And, and so they left to go get the wife, the bride. And the chief told us about it. It was all excited. Well, when he got, when the family got there, the bride and the bride's father had decided they weren't ready. And so we were waiting. We weren't sure what was going to happen. We were just told by some of the locals, well, they'll all come back here. There's going to be a big party. Well, they come back, and they all pile out of the vehicle and just disperse. And so we're, we're kind of left there standing, and finally one of the men comes to us and says, well, we had a little interesting situation happen at the bride's house. She decided not to come. And I thought, well, that would stop a wedding, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, in, in most cultures. But, it was, but they were embarrassed by it, so they didn't want to talk about it. So we just kind of let it go. We were all excited about getting to see what was really about to happen, and it didn't happen, and we kind of just, just don't talk about it because it was embarrassing. Well, that's what's happening here. Mary sneaks back to Jesus and says, you need to do something, son. These people are out of wine. Now, what was Mary asking Jesus to do? Well, we don't know, but here's what we do know. She looked at the servants and said, I have no idea what he's going to do, but you just go do whatever he says. And she leaves. So there's Jesus, okay? He said, well, my hour hasn't come. But here's a woman who's sharing a desperate message. You ever been desperate in your life? Have you ever run to God desperate? I've met a few people desperate in the middle of the day of a wedding. I've seen a few. It can get pretty desperate. <clears throat> You're not sure what's about to happen. I was in my study getting ready for a wedding and the groom came running in day of the wedding. He said, Dr. Wiles, I can't find the rings. And I said, okay. He said, no, I can't find the rings. I have the rings, I can't find them. I said, okay. I said, well, it's okay. We can get rings later. He said, no, we can't. These rings are family. They're both family rings. I've lost them. They're going to kill me. <laughs> so we go out in the parking lot. We're searching through his car. We're calling his brother. The wedding's going to happen in about 30 minutes, and we can't find the rings. He is worried. He doesn't want to tell her. He said, can, and I said, well, okay, let me, let me just, let me just, some of our people are here. Let me just see if I can find some rings. He said, you think she's not going to notice that when I give her a ring that it's not her grandmother's ring? I said, well, she's going to be really nervous. You don't know what she's going to be thinking about. And 
But anyway, I finally said, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go tell her. So we had to. We had to go and tell them. We just, and I can't tell you how this groom, he was, just, he was just desperate. He didn't know what to do. Well, sometimes we're desperate. You ever been desperate? Let me ask you this. Maybe you weren't desperate about your wedding. You ever been desperate about your marriage? Where you're so worried? You ever, you ever been desperate about somebody else's marriage? Or somebody else's family? Were you worried about them? You know what that feels like? Have you ever felt like Mary? You just need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, you need to do something. This little family right here needs help. You ever felt that way about a family? You ever felt that way about your family? Well, here's what I want to do this morning. This is not the invitation. This is before the invitation. But I'm going to ask you to step into that role this morning. If you feel today a little bit of desperation maybe about your own family or maybe about a family that you're worried about and just in the spirit of interceding for them, I want us to have a time of prayer this morning for families. So if you feel led to intercede for one of them, would you just stand where you are? Not be your own, maybe somebody else's family because I want to pray over you Um, because I know how it can feel when you're worried and you're just wondering what's going to happen. Somebody needs to do something. Um, Just stand. And like Mary, stand before the Lord and say, Lord, could you do something? It might mean a miracle. He may need to turn water into wine. You know what the good news is? He does that kind of thing. He intervenes in families. Let's let him intervene in the one you're worried about. Will you let me pray for us? Church family, You see people standing all around you? Just join in a time of prayer for families. Just spend a minute right there in your own quiet soul and lift up what you see in front of you, would you? Lord, there are people standing all over this room, including me. And there are some right now who are desperate. They're like Mary. They're, they're, they're running to you saying, Lord, this is broken. This, this is embarrassing. This, this is hurtful. We're out of resources. Can you, can you do something? So you sense the desperation and the spirits of some people this morning. First of all, Lord, I want to thank them for standing standing on behalf of people they love. Maybe their own family, maybe someone else's, but they're standing right now before you. And so right now, Lord, we ask you to intervene and be a God of provision. Just like so many, many years ago, your son did something that nobody expected, nobody could have anticipated, and nobody else could have done. We stand before you today asking for that again. Well, we ask you to do what only you could do. Maybe it's something that nobody expects. And we ask you to intervene and bring healing into these families that are represented by those standing today. Bring hope. Bring joy. Bring forgiveness. Bring grace. Breakthroughs. New patterns of behavior. Whatever it is, Lord, that's needed. We ask you on behalf of these who stand as intercessors today. 
Lord, that you would just bring your presence, patience, a new insight, a new perspective, whatever it may be, Lord. We just come before you asking for it, trusting you to do what only you can do. And may we see it happen in the lives of our families. And we offer this prayer to you today in the name of the one who turned the water into wine, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all. You can be seated. And thank you for being willing to stand. You know, one other quick word about this text. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, y'all. But there's something about marriage to the Lord. Do you know the Bible opens and closes with marriages and weddings? Isn't that interesting? You know, the Bible opens with a wedding. God performed the very first wedding in the Garden of Eden. It took a miracle. In that story, he had to create the bride and the groom, so that's obviously a miracle. But he did it, and he blessed it. And then you read the Old Testament, and he will actually use that imagery as God is the groom and Israel's his bride. And then, and then you read the New Testament and Jesus will be the groom and the church will be his bride. There's just this, there's something connected about weddings, about marriages in the scripture. Do you know the Bible closes with a wedding? Opens with one, closes with one. You get to Revelation 19. Let me remind you what it says. In Revelation 19 verse 7 it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then verse 9, it says, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Wow. And then you come to chapter 21 of Revelation, and John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Isn't that fascinating? that there's just something about weddings and marriage to God. It's actually his. So we should, we should hold it in high regard. I encourage you to do that wherever you are right now in your life. And you do it with hope. You know, you can't go back and undo. I had someone say to me yesterday, man, if I could just go back, I would just do this differently. Well, guess what you don't get to do? Unless you're writing an email, you don't get to hit delete, do you? Some of y'all ought to do that, but you don't get to do that. <laughs> but guess what you do get to do? Start right where you are and lean into the future you have now. Do that. <laughs> and give God a chance to heal. There's just something about it, this wedding imagery and how blessed it is to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this morning, here's, here's how we'll close it out. Your story your story is a story of transformation. God's at work in you. And families, yours and so many around us, they need the presence of Jesus. They need the wine that only he can bring. Let's ask him for it. And we can intercede for others. And here's what I would tell you. It all matters. Your story matters. And your story matters. And your story matters. And yours and your, all of y'all's stories matter. Because God's at work in every one of y'all. And he has a plan just for you, how you fit into the big story, because his story certainly matters. Praise his name. Let's pray together. 
Well, Father, today we thank you for all these stories, all these lives, all these families. We thank you for the teachings of the scripture. We thank you for the stories in John's gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the miracles, the signs that we see. Thank you that John chose to tell us this story. Without John, we wouldn't have this story. And so, Lord, as we reflect upon it, may we somehow connect it to our own story. And we ask you, Lord, to answer the prayers of the people that you've heard today. And pray your blessings on relationships and families and desperate situations. We ask you to intervene, Lord. And for those of us who are the intercessors, help us to be faithful to come to you and ask for your help. We thank you that we can do that and we can trust you to be at work. And we just love you. And we offer ourselves to you today in Jesus' name, amen.